Welcome, esteemed viewer, to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja TV. I'm Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now on paperback, audiobook, and the ebook is always free to download whenever you're watching this. So as soon as you're done, go get yourself a free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, under the name Robert Kent, I've also written some horror novels. The first part of my series, The Book of David, is also available for free. So you can get this downloaded for free as an ebook. The rest of this you'll have to pay for. Uh, if you like what you see here today, make sure you check out more at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, you can see interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, and other publishing professionals, uh, including today's guest, Darby Carshoot. And now I'm thrilled to get the uh, chance to hold up someone's paperbacks other than my own, uh, author <laughs> of Finn Finnegan and Gideon Spear. Uh, Darby, how are you? I'm good, Rob. Good to be here. How are you this morning? I am excellent and fired up. I'm on about my fourth uh, cup of coffee, so I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, Darby, tell the uh, esteemed viewer a little bit about yourself and your writing. All right. And I do want to, again, thank you for letting me come and hang out with you today, Rob. And when you said four cups of coffee, I'm thinking, well, slacker. I'm probably <laughs> on my ninth cup. So, you know, get busy on that, boy. <laughs> well, excellent. We'll vibrate our way right off the show. <laughs> uh, so how um, you asked me how I kind of a little bit about myself, how I got started writing. Um, yes. Yeah. Tell us uh, tell us about Darby Carshoot and the books you have available. And don't forget to tell us where we can find out more about you online. OK, uh, well, um, I started writing about eight years ago. Um, I was teaching social studies, in fact, middle grade social studies, seventh graders at the time. And um, through a very twisted, convoluted conversation with one of my kiddos, I uh, had an idea for a book and, and I started writing uh, very badly. And I wrote the first draft of my debut novel, which was, again, a very bad draft. And uh, I rewrote it about 30 times, learning how to write a book by writing a book and um, began the processing you know, the process of getting it published. And uh, then um, fast forward eight years now, and I just released um, my 13th book, uh, Del Toro Moon, excuse my back of my head, um, which came out October uh, 2nd. <laughs> that is a beautiful cover. Thank you. And, and I'm going to just take a moment right here um, to hold it up closer. Um, Riza Riddell, who's a very well-known middle grade or middle uh, grade author, illustrator, I should say, an illustrator, um, did the cover for it. And we were so lucky to get her to do the work. Al Hollow Press is my publisher and Emma Nelson um, surprised me and said, we got Riza to do the cover. And I was simply over the moon, no pun intended. <laughs> well, you should have, but it came out amazing. Yeah, uh, I have book, book cover envy. Yeah, I, and book covers are the second most important thing in a book. I mean, the first is the story, second's the book cover, third, I always think it's the title. I think an evocative title can really help sell a book. Well, I want to talk uh, more about you, but let's, let's stop right there. What is it about a, a book title? Um, or what, what are the characteristics for a title that you're looking for specifically uh, to help your books? Um, I either try to find a title that has a familiar ring to it, but then it, it's just a little bit 
off center. Like um, I could have just said for my thin, my thin book, the first book in my fin Finnegan series, I could have just said the adventures of Finn McCullen. And that's kind of a generic sound to it. And so I came up with Finn Finnegan um, because at the time there was a really uh, popular book called Bud Not Buddy. And I always thought that was a great title for a book. And so I was playing, you know, with the idea of doing something like Finn Not Finnegan because in the book, the character, young Finn, hates his name Finnegan. And so when people address him as Finnegan, he always goes, I go by Finn, not Finnegan. So I thought Finn Not Finnegan would be a great title. But at that time, Bud Not Buddy uh, was a very prominent book in the middle grade world. So I thought, well, I'll just shorten it to Finn Finnegan. And the alliteration has a nice ring to it. It's that little quirky title, um, kind of uh, whimsical. So it fits the nature of the book. Same with Del Toro Moon. Um, I wanted to get the idea that the Del Toro family was in there. The moon is their sigil, that their family has hunted monsters for generations under that, under that sign, under the, the Del Toro Moon sign. So again, I was looking for titles that, that kind of catch someone's eye, but also catches their ear. So when they say it aloud, there's something about it. Uh, and that's all you want as an author, for them to just pause long enough to either pick up the book or read the back, the back cover copy and then go, oh, this sounds like something I might be interested in reading. And both of those are very melodic titles. Del Toro Moon just sort of rolls right off the tongue. Uh, while we're talking about titles, it just occurred to me that I should talk about our mutual friend, Mike Mullen, who gave me some of the greatest advice about titles ever. Uh, Mike, of course, is the author of Ashfall. Um, and then there's uh, two other books, um, What Ash and Winter and Sunrise is the third one. Uh, and what he learned was he did a post-apocalyptic uh, young adult thriller. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to get Mike uh, to come on the show. It's going to be a great time. Uh, but Mike uh, learned in calling his book Ashfall that anytime he was ranked in a young adult list, anytime uh, the only information about his book was the title, uh, because it started with an A and most lists were alphabetical, he was always at the top of that list. And originally I had a book called A Zombie Story. And when Mike told me that, I was like, oh, well, we've got to find an A word. So that, that's how A Zombie Story became altogether now A Zombie Story. And sure enough, when uh, I make lists on uh, zombie books and they do them alphabetical, there I am right there at the top. Okay, I'm going to go change the titles of all my books to start with the letter A. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, speaking of Mike Mullen, um, you notice he blurbed Finn Finnegan for me when it first came out. He was a gracious author and took time to do that. And uh, I have always loved his his apocalyptic series. So to have his name on the front of one of my books is, is such an honor. Well, while we're at it. Sure enough, there's a Mike Mullen blurb right at the top of this one. Uh, and actually, there's right next to it is a Darby Karshett blog, uh, sorry, blog blurb uh, from Darby Karshett. And I have also had the great honor of having been blurred for Gideon Spear, which I'm misplacing my books. Uh, but talk about alliteration, I've, I've always got a kick out of this. The blurb is a, what, a fine folio of fantastic fiction, um, which I meant as a joke. And then I was so I was so thrilled. It was one of the great moments of, of running Middle Grade Ninja was to say, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm out and about in the world. People can buy this in a bookstore. And, the, and there I am like a like a for real uh, reviewer. So it was a very nice moment. Well, 
Yeah, I love that. I just went, oh, that is so clever. I wish I had thought of that, but I'm going to grab it and use it. So thank you for that. But there is a fourth book in the series, and you want to call it that. You you have my total permission. Go right ahead. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We have uh, plucked the heck out of Mike Mullen. Let's talk more about Darby (laughs) Karshet. Um, I wanted to ask you because I was uh, reading that you've got a degree in uh, a degree in anthropology and a master's in education. Do I have that right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you about that background. And of course, you're teaching social studies for a day job. Uh, and I and I want to know because that's it's a little bit off the beaten path from you know I've got a degree in literature and creative writing. Uh, very uh, very very plain Jane. A lot of the writers I know have gone on to get uh, very expensive MFA degrees. Uh, in writing, how does and what I what I find uh, is with those MFA programs, a lot of times is for the first five years, uh, those writers are producing books about other books because that's what they've been studying nonstop for you know six eight years, however long it took to to complete the program. So how do or do you feel that uh, having such a diverse uh, background in subjects beyond mere literature, how has that impacted your writing? What does that bring to uh, your books? Uh, great question, and uh, something I, I am passionate about. I think I think all authors, in fact, all artists, and not just literary, but all art forms, need to be students of the world. And the more you know about this world we live in, the history of it, the different cultures, languages, uh, the economic situations, government, current events, um, past events, the more you know about stuff like that, the real, the more real it makes your art. Even if it's just subconsciously, you're going to bring extra depth to whatever you create, the more you know. And my degree in anthropology really was um, a direct step or outcome of falling in love with the Lord of the Rings trilogy when I was, oh, 10 or 11 years old. And Tolkien got me fascinated by history and world cultures and World cultures and that book and and history got me interested in anthropology. I grew up in New Mexico, and so my degree is in Southwest anthropology, which led me to be even more interested in other world cultures, which led me to start studying mythologies from other cultures, which led me to teach social studies. Uh, I retired four years ago, so I don't teach anymore. But teaching social studies led me to start writing fantasy adventure books for boys. So, you know, it's a lovely circle and nothing is ever wasted. Anything you learn in life, you will use somewhere else. You just never know where. You know, I've recently learned how to uh, restucco the outside of my house and and do some minor plumbing. And I love that. And somewhere it's going to show up in a book. I don't know where. But, the, you know, it's like uh, you and I were talking the other day on your um, middle grade ninja site, we were talking about that famous quote from Michelangelo that it, I think it was age 87, he said, I am still learning. I love that phrase. I don't want to stop learning. I don't want to stop trying new things. Like doing these live, you know, interviews, really tough for an introvert like me. But every time you push yourself outside of that comfort zone, you know, you grow a little, you learn a little, and it all comes back into your art. So when you uh, look back on your on your artist journey up to this point, which we know obviously is going to be continuing for some time, uh, 13 books is, is soon going to become 26 books. Uh, <laughs> I'm counting on it. I uh, come back here and talk about every one of them every time uh, every time one comes out. Um, 
but um, as you look back, do you see sort of a clear path that, oh, it just didn't make sense to me then, but this led to this, which led me here? Or is it just sort of a, a scattered um, set of events that, that have made you the person that you are? You know, that's uh, interesting. My husband and I always joke that life is never a straight line, that it just, it meanders all over the place. But you're right. Looking back, you'll see, um, you'll see events that happened that needed to happen sequentially to get a person to where they are. But it, that's the fun part of looking back in life is you can say, I see now the threads that came together to make this happen. But when you're in the middle of it, it all just seems like a mishmash. Um, when you get to be my age, you start realizing to trust the things turn out the way they're supposed to turn out. And I never dreamed of being a writer. I never wrote a thing until I turned 50 years old. I never, I mean, writing was hard. Who would want to be a writer? I, I tried to take classes in college that I didn't have to write. Um, but, you know, there's an old saying that you read and you read and you read, gorging yourself on the written word, and then one day you vomit up your own book. And I think that's what happened with me. You were avoiding reading, at a, or not reading, uh, writing at a young age. So what, what was it the change for you that, that flipped and said, okay, I'm going to do 30 drafts and stick with this? <laughs> well, I always read as a kid. I was a voracious reader. Um, there's a famous um, author, Pam Allen, who said, reading is breathing in writing is breathing out. And I've always thought that was really true. I just inhaled for a really long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do live in Colorado. Um, uh, but it was really funny. It's, okay, I'll just come out. I don't tell a lot of people this. I got interested in writing because I started writing fan fiction. Ready for it? Oh, yes. This is, this is the kind of rare details you can only yeah. get here at Middle Grade Ninja TV. Continue. That's right. I started writing fan fiction for Foyle's War. And Foyle's War was a BBC mystery set during World War II in, in Great Britain. And I love the series. And just for grins, I wrote a couple of fan fiction pieces and posted them on some fan site, thinking, okay, that was fun, and, and then I'll go on with my life. But I got a pretty good response on it. And I thought, hmm, this writing business, this is kind of fun. I wonder if I could write my own book now yeah, because I don't live in New York City and 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 you know I I'm not I'm not you know you have to be a famous person to be a writer um, but I thought so I started reading a little bit about authors and I realized they lived all over the world and so I thought maybe I could write my own book and then as that idea was kind of gelling in my head one of my students was reading a, another book, uh, the Rangers Apprentice series, which I love. And I said, it's a great story. Um, and he said, yeah, but why is it in so many middle grade and YA books, the parents are gone or they're missing or they're bad or they're evil or they're stupid. Why are parents always portrayed that way? And I thought pretty insightful for a 13 year old to, to say that. So I started thinking about it. Why is it that the parents are always bad or, or inept or missing. So I started writing my first series uh, that featured a strong father and son relationship, master and apprentice more. And I really liked that. I thought there was some great storytelling there. And, you know, that morphed into another series and morphed into more books. And it just kind of became, kind of became my brand. It's, it's an, it's an, a relationship I like to explore. 
Um, of course, there's others, but um, that's been a lot of fun. So I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of rambled. No, there. it did. I'm uh, relating a little bit because that was a similar sticking point that I had with middle grade fiction is the writers taking the easy way out and killing off the parents on page one. Uh, and now James gets on the giant peach and it's well, I had the parents could have been alive and just on land that whole time. There was there was no reason to kill them. Um, but uh, so with Banneker Bones, I've, I've got this extended family for Banneker, which sounded like a great idea for the first novel. But now I'm, I'm midway through book three uh, and I'm, I'm starting to see, oh, oh, if I had killed those parents, this would really remove a lot of the obstacles I'm having to overcome now in, in the story. <laughs> so. I, I really I really think that when you can have solid adults in books, it gives your preteen and teen characters something to resonate against. Um, they can still be the hero of the story. In fact, if the adult uh, gets in trouble and the kid has to save the adult, that makes the kid even more heroic. So I do think it's, it really gives the kid characters a chance to shine when they can be just as competent and heroic as the adults still make a mistake, still blundering along. Um, but it gives a more realistic view of the world. You know, the kids growing up nowadays don't live in societies that are just teenagers and nothing else. We live in a society with all kinds of people, with elderly, with infants. And we need to, we need to be, we need to be honest with, with the readers we write for and say, this is the world you live in. And some adults are going to be, you know, pretty crappy. And some are going to be amazing. And that's okay to give them amazing adult characters in books, uh, especially boys. You know, I have a real passion for writing for our boys because um, boys who read grow up to become men who think and feel. And so we need to keep our boys readers, even though right now in the, in the, the book world, there's a big push. There should be no boy books or girl books. I agree with that, but right now, we don't have that option. We don't have that luxury. We need to keep our boys reading. Girls will read more widely. Boys are a little more picky. So if I can keep one kiddo a reader, then then yay, I've done my job. Well, I'm gonna leapfrog. I wanna I wanna talk about some of your individual books, but there is a strong father son theme through most of your fiction. Uh, certainly in in Del Toro Moon, uh, and and in Fin Finnegan as well. Um, so what is it about that relationship of a father and son that speaks to you that makes you want to revisit that again, book after book? You know, um, I do get asked that question a lot because, um, you know, people always say, how can you write boys and how can you want to write boys? Because, you know, well, you're not one. And I go, well, clearly not. I'm a middle-aged woman. Uh, but there's something about both the master and apprentice relationship which is a very primal one. If you look at male archetypes and you look at the patriarch and the warrior and you know the, the king and all the different archetypes in there, that's a pretty old one. And you look at the hero's journey, your hero always has the wise mentor. And I think there is some great storytelling embedded in that very complex relationship. So whether it's mash and apprentice, uncle and nephew, father and son, um, there's some great storytelling in there, and and I I'm not done exploring it quite yet. Um, you know, there'll be other books I'll write that'll probably have girls in it, and and I have written an adult series that had a, a strong female warrior in it, and those were fun. But I do find myself coming back to the father son master apprentice relationship. Um, it's just like people 
people who write romance books and in every one of their romance books, they have a guy and girl falling in love. Um, and people never say, well, you know, aren't you done exploring that? No, because it's, it's infinite. And the, the relationship, any relationship between two human beings is infinite and has storytelling embedded in it. And I, I draw a lot on archetypes and those, the, the master, the wise mentor, and then the young hero, ancient primal archetypes. Great place to start every story. I wanted to, to ask you, kind of piggybacking off that, uh, in your guest post, uh, Be Like Michelangelo, which is available now at middlegradeninja.com. Everybody, uh, there's a lot of great practical information just about what makes a middle grade book in that post. Uh, I'll make sure I link to it in this video. Make sure you check it out. Uh, but in that post, um, you talk a lot about uh, character being the most important aspect of a story. And then I think of the great Robert McKee, which the writing workshops I, I, I teach roll their eyes and, and get sick of me talking about how brilliant Robert McKee is. But he yeah. is. Buy a copy of story. It's amazing. It'll change your life. Um, uh, but uh, one of his quotes is, um, oh, and how I've built it up and I'm, I'm suddenly having a brain fart on what the actual quote is. Um, it's, uh, oh, character is structure. Structure is character, so there's no way to determine a plot without first leaning toward character. And I take the opposite approach. I think that if you have the world's most interesting character but not an exciting plot, your story's not going anywhere. Why is it, um, and then there is no right answer to this because all of, all of art is opinion, uh, but why is it that for you, character is the most important place to start? Um, well, for me, character, character drives the story. And, it, and especially with, with kids, they have to love the character and they don't care if the character is in danger um, or they don't care what kind of danger the character may be in unless they love that character. So I always start with, with strong character. It drives the story. It gives us a reason to want them to get out of danger or it, we want them to succeed at whatever mission they're on. So uh, for me, strong character starts. And when I have a strong character, I find that I can ratchet up the action so much easier than when I don't have a good sense of the character. So for me, I always start with strong character. And one of the things, and I know I mentioned this before, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of always starting with archetypes. And archetypes aren't the same as stereotypes. Maybe we can come back to that later in this podcast. But uh, I like to start with an archetype and then really blend a couple of them together to come up with the character. And then once I've got my character, the second most important thing for me is their name. And I have this thing about collecting names. So whenever I hear an interesting name, I write it in this old notebook of mine by subject. Like lately, I've been collecting names that you would hear um, in an old Western um, because I've got some ideas from some books I want to explore. So I collect names. and Possibly collect sequels to Del Toro Moon or Del Toro Moon adjacent novels? Well, you, you never know. <laughs> um, I collect names based on how they sound and what their meaning is. So that every character's name, um, the meaning of their name also parallels their personality. So my first series was the Griffin Rising series. And Griffin was a young um, guardian angel who lived among humans. And the word Griffin means strong in faith. And he was a guardian angel who had kind of lost his way. And then his mentor was the very worldly Basil. And Basil means kingly. And he was quite a kingly character. 
So every time I, I choose characters' names, um, there's always a reason behind it. Like Finn McCullen is actually, well, that whole book was actually based on the Irish mythology, Foyne McCullen or Finn McCool. And so Finn McCool, I morph into Finn McCullen. Um, Gideon Lear was based on the old Welsh trickster Gwydion, but I changed it to Gideon. Um, so every name- Oh, that makes sense. He's a very much a trickster character. Very much, yeah. So I, I love to change, um, I, I love to make sure the name is just perfect for each character. Um, in Del Toro Moon, uh, my latest book, which has not only a family of a uh, father and two sons who hunt monsters in Southern day Colorado, they have talking Andalusian war stallions that help them. And the war stallions names, I had the most fun picking out. So you have three main characters in Del Toro Moon who are the horses. You have the wise avuncular figure of El Cid. And El Cid is the white stallion that, that Matt is partnered with. Because El Cid's the most, you know, uh, the, the one with the most experience. And young Matt is the greenhorn. And El Cid is his best friend. They, he grew up with El Cid in his life always. And of course, El Cid was the name of the famous Spanish warrior from the Middle Ages who helped save Spain um, from the Moors invasion. And El Cid is a national hero of the Spanish people uh, and a great warrior. And so he, that white stallion had to be named El Cid. Um, the father in Del Toro Moon, Javier Del Toro, uh, rides a big, just mean-spirited, grumpy black stallion whose name is Turk. Turk, of course, being uh, a young warrior in the business world, the young Turks. But it also rhymes with the word jerk because he's so mean to the boys that Matt and his brother Ben call him Turk the Jerk. Had to have it. And then they have a third uh, uh, war horse who hunts with them, Isabel, uh, Izzy. And she is a, a feminist at heart and she thinks she can do just as well as the stallions. And she does. She's a great warrior. She was named after the San Isabel Forest in southern Colorado where the whole story is set. So again, names are so important. It's from those names, I start developing their personalities and from the personality, here comes the plot. So long story short, uh, to me, characters will always drive the plot. Plots can be, the plot can be expanded if you have really great characters. Well, let's talk uh, more about Del Toro Moon. I'm not going to give it justice. If you could give us just the elevator pitch or the, the summary for those foolish enough to have embarked on this episode without having first read Del Toro Moon. As soon as you're done watching, go get your copy. We're going to convince you today this is a book you don't want to miss. Uh, but tell us, Dean Viewer, about the book. Okay, so basically it's about a 12-year-old boy and his family who, aided by talking Andalusian war horses and carrying um, magical maces, which are war clubs, hunt monsters in modern day Southern Colorado. And their, their task is uh, since the 1600s, their family has guarded you know, the, local, the local people from monsters in this region. And so the family has to go out periodically into the canyon lands where you can't get vehicles. And they go on their horses and they keep the number of skinners, which are the monsters, down to a minimum. Um, and there are families like the Del Toro scattered all over the Southwest. 
this is an ancient group who came over to the New World centuries ago and have stayed here to guard the people uh, from monsters. So you have the Navars down in New Mexico and the Montoyas out in Arizona. And, and uh, I just focused on the Del Toro family. And uh, the book is as much about monster hunting and, and weapons, but it's also about um, the power of, of family love, the love of this dad for his two boys, uh, the love the two boys have for each other, although Matt's older brother, Ben's be a typical older brother. Um, and uh, the power of love between Matt and El Cid. And El Cid's like a second father to Matt, and they're very close. And, and Matt's coming of age, and Matt wants to be a great hunter like his dad, but he doesn't know if he can. And like every 12-year-old, you, you don't know if you can live up to the family reputation. And so it, it was a lot of fun to write. It was really, I would say of all my books, it's my hands-down favorite. It was the book of my heart. I've always wanted to write about talking horses. I could have done talking dragons, but, you know, my, uh, my families are, are, um, they're caballeros from way back. So they're horsemen. They're not dragon riders. Oh, speaking of dragons, favorite book of all, one of my favorite books of all time, Naomi Novak's Temerar series. Have you read that? I haven't. Should I add um, it right to the top of the list? Add it because think, think, um, master and commander, but with dragons. So she has the Napoleonic War going on um, with the Navy, the Army, but now an Air Force where they ride dragons. So great series. I loved it. Pick it up. Yeah. We should uh, should rewrite whatever they've got on the cover and put that on front. Because <laughs> that'll, that'll move books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me uh, ask you about uh, Del Toro Moon. Uh, and I've got a bunch of questions I want to unpack just uh, just from your description. Uh, but one thing that really struck me as I, I read it is what an amazing opening you've got. I'm a, I'm a sucker for a great opening because I'm a firm believer that if you don't nail your opening, don't worry about the middle of the ending. The reader's already doing something else. Um, <laughs> and that, that opening just grabs you right there on from that first sentence. You've got a tremendous cliffhanger there at the end of the first chapter that there's there's no way you could possibly set the book down. Um, slight spoiler, I guess, for, for chapter one, we open with our hero, Matt Del Toro, getting ready to, to face his first uh, Skinner. Uh, and no sooner is one Skinner dispatched than, than four more show up. And that's how the chapter ends. And it's, well, am I, am I going to put this book down when poor Matt might be eaten by four Skinners or am I going to keep going? Um, so talk a little bit about the opening and, and, and what you're trying to achieve. And, and also, how many times did you rewrite that opening? Oh, gosh, that's a great question, because um, like you and I have talked it in the past, um, I usually try to write my ending scene first. So I always write the last chapter first and the last scene first in the book. And I kind of did the, this. But this book uh, kind of came out of nowhere one day. And it was that first line um, that just kind of popped into my head, the one that's uh, now I'm trying to remember my first line. Um, Oh, the worst thing about riding point on your first hunt, waiting to see if you're going to die on your first hunt. And as soon as those words came into my head, I thought, well, who's hunting? Why is it his first hunt? And then I had to go, you know, write the story around it. Um, but I So you started to... with, just, with just that opening line, because it is yeah. a killer. Yeah. Hey, Tolkien started with a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit on the back of a paper he was grading when he was a professor. And he said, what's a hobbit? Why does it live in a hole? And you know, from there, as we know, history, history came about. 
But yeah, I, that opening line, and it want, I wanted to set the tone. This is my first book I ever written in first person. All my books have been written in third person point of view. And um, I tried first person to get Matt's voice just right. And uh, I wanted kind of that a little bit snarky, a little bit sarcastic, but not too much because Matt's, Matt's a, a worrier and, and he's a little unsure of himself. He's not quite as cocky as big brother Ben. So I, I used that first opening line to kind of set up Matt's personality. And then I know I wanted to make sure right away that the reader knew that these not only were these uh, family on horseback, but that the horses could talk and that the horses don't get along. So Sid, El Sid and Turk were immediately sniping at each other from day one. Um, but then Turk would argue with a stump. So, you know, that's his nature. Um, and I wanted dad's nature to come right out. So I put it all together. But of course, you got to have a cliff, a mini cliffhanger at the end of a chapter. And it's, it's hard to remember to put them on the end of every chapter. But with your first chapter, you absolutely want to keep that reader going. And, you know, the goal of every writer is to make sure that the reader uh, is sleep deprived and never can you know, get to bed on time because they're reading your book. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I always worry that if you get to the end of that chapter and you don't have some kind of cliffhanger, that's a moment they might, you know, I'm a lot of these books I'm reading here on my phone, depending on where I'm out and about in the world. And if you don't have me hooked to keep going, I might check my email or check Twitter and then you've lost me. Yep. Yep. And, you know, we're uh, we're in a society where, you, like you said, there are so much competition for people's entertainment, uh, not only their attention, but their entertainment dollar. And so we have to really give them a product that they feel wow, this is worth my time and worth my money to get involved in. So, you know, of course, I always believe that books will always be here. And because every medium needs good storytelling, music needs a good story and, and art needs a story and certainly movies need stories. And so we as storytellers will always be in demand. And what, uh, what is it that that for you, you get from a book that you can't get from a movie or a video game or, or any other medium? Um, well, I think with a book, it's, you know, video game and movies to me are passive and a book is active and you, you know, book becomes alive when a reader picks it up. And so for me, reading a book is such, is almost a form of meditation because you literally do lose yourself and it lets, it lets parts of your mind just take a break, you know, the analytical part of your mind, and you can just be in the book and be in the story. And, you know, you, you bring more to it uh, than just the passive reading of the words. You bring your own background knowledge, your own schema, it's called, that you bring to a book. And so your what you think a character may look like or act like would be different from the next person reading it. But it makes the book yours by doing that. Where a movie, they already tell you everything. So passive entertainment versus active entertainment. And I know when I first interviewed you, uh, again, that interview available at middlegradeninja.com. Um, when I first interviewed you, you were uh, very rigid. You, you told me you did not uh, watch television outside of Game of Thrones or the occasional football game. And you were reading for three hours every night. Is that still pretty accurate? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I've, I've left the teaching field uh, and, and I still go back every in fact, every week I still go back to my junior high at noon and help out with a book club that we've been running for, I don't know, 10 years. And so, you know, I'm still involved with, with that age group. 
and I do a lot of school visits because I still love, you know, I still love hanging out with kiddos. But I do try to, to be pretty, pretty um, regimented with myself. I try to write three or four hours a day. I try to still read, you know, try to get through a couple of books a week. Um, uh, right now I'm doing a lot of editing and promotion and, you know, that business side of, of books, which is just, you know, part and parcel of the author's life. Uh, so I still try to stay pretty, pretty dedicated to my schedule. Um, I liked what I like now is I'm a morning person. So I love the fact that I can write in the morning instead of the evenings. And that's been really nice. So what time of uh, morning is ideal for you? And by the way, you do not sound that retired. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's uh, what's the golden hour for writing? Um, uh, you're asking what time I start writing in the morning? Yeah, it's typically. Okay. Well, usually I get up and my husband and I, um, we love running and biking and, and mountain climbing. We just got back from two weeks in Patagonia and did uh, a big uh, week-long trek there, and it was amazing. And so we, we try to work out every day. So we get up real early, try to be out on the trail, and... Um, um, my battery's going dead, so I'm just going to pause. Everybody think happy thoughts. I'm just going to grab my charger. Sure. Ah, uh, well, she's gone. I suppose I could talk with you a little bit about Deltura Moon. Let's enjoy the opening together. This will be uh, hopefully entertaining. Let me pull it up right now. So I really am fired up about this uh, opening. I was teaching a, a writing workshop uh, last weekend talking about great openings, and I went to uh, Gone by Michael Grant, but I think I'm going to start using Deltoro Moon instead. Uh, here we go. Deltoro Moon by Darby Karshev. Uh, worst thing about riding point on my first hunt, waiting to find out if I was going to die on my first hunt. Uh, of course, when we uh, when we Del Toro said hunting, we meant monster hunting, or as my big brother Ben called it, the family rodeo. Nervous sweat soaked my hands and neck. It didn't help the sun was dialed to extra crispy. The towering sandstone and granite cliffs surrounding us corralled the summer day and turned the three square mile valley into a giant oven. The heat of the soil radiated through the soles of my cowboy boots, easing from foot to foot. I wondered how long it took to be baked alive. And I won't make you uh, listen to me read your entire book to you. But what I really love about that is, one, obviously, it's got that great hook in there. We know monsters are coming. Um, and but as this goes, we also get a real sense of who Matt is, because immediately we've got some of that snark you mentioned. Um, we're getting a feel for that. Uh, and you're, you've got your hands full with a lot of fantasy to introduce. This is a world with uh, talking horses. This is um, a world with a, with a rich uh, mythology and that is completely um, unlike our world. Uh, and you're working all of those details in while setting up a monster hut. Uh, and you're doing it all right there within a, a confined chapter. Uh, and then another thing that I noticed that you did is you had some fairly graphic, I mean, middle grade graphic uh, violence just right off the bat. And I wonder if that's to set the tone or to warn parents or teachers who might be reading that, hey, this is what you're getting into. There is going to be this level of violence throughout. And for you know some young fans that, that want to see the monsters uh, meet violent ends, that hopefully exciting them and getting them involved. Darby, have I lost you completely? Robert, I think I lost you. Hold on. I think we can still hear you. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hi. Can you see me okay? I sure can. Are you charged up and ready to go? I am. 
Fantastic. So what, um, tell us a little bit about uh, the violence in Del Toro Moon uh, and how you knew when you were being too violent for middle grade. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the thing with I love about monsters is the more, I want to say humanoid, but the yeah, the more humanoid they are, the more I'm careful not to make the violence too realistic. So in like in Finn Finnegan, the Amadon, the goblin-like creatures are a little more humanoid. So I made their destruction a little less graphic. But because the Skinners are like these big, I don't know, kind of just wolf-like creatures that look like they're made out of raw hamburger, basically. So I made that kind of um, violence could be a little more graphic, just a touch. Um, more just gross graphic, like, oh, they kind of splattered. But nothing more than that, just a little touch of it. You know, that's the great thing about fantasy books is that they let, um, oops, did I lose you again? Nope, um, okay, they let, um, um, oops, I think I lost you. No, you're here, but I'm only, we're only getting audio. Okay, do you see me now? Yes, we do. Okay. You're back. Okay, sorry. I Bear with me, uh, esteemed audience. We may uh, be muddling through here. We've got a, a, you know, a neophyte techie on this end. So I apologize to your audience. Um, well, if people wanted to see broadcasting professionals, there's plenty of that available. We are writers. <laughs> and, yeah, we'll be here. <laughs> Um, so if it keeps fading in and out, I'll keep coming back to you. Just bear with me, everybody. Um, okay. And there it goes again. Here we are. Um, and I totally lost the thread of what you had asked me. Oh, we were talking about violence in, in middle grade. And I wanted to use that as an opportunity to segue into my, my next question, which is Matt, slight spoiler, may or may not have a romantic interest uh, as the story <laughs> develops. So I'd also like to know what is um, what are your tips for writing romance in middle grade? How do you know when you're not making your your, your audience, which is primarily boys, uh, start to say, "Ick, I don't want to read a romance novel. I want to read it about monsters." How do you pull back on that but still tell an honest uh, romantic story? <laughs> it's like, oh no, is this a kissing book? <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny because with Matt, um, he was kind of like, oh, I like. Perry, she's nice. I like her. And Perry totally didn't feel that way about Matt. So the, the romance, or it was really a crush, was pretty much one-sided. Um, Perry just likes Matt as a friend. But this is that age where they're, where especially boys and girls are kind of practicing what it feels like. And so you can have little touches of it. But in middle grade, romance is always pretty much off the screen. It's more first-time crushes. Um, maybe older middle grade might get maybe a first sweet kiss. But with middle grade, you keep romance pretty mild. You know, YA and new adult can get can get pretty steamy. But middle grade is always the first. You know, that's the thing about middle grade. There's so many firsts, first crushes, first times you realize your parents um, aren't infallible, first big heartbreaks, first big losses. And I think that's what really sums up the difference between middle grade and YA is it's 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 first well that makes me think when i uh, had 
um, Barbara Schupon here a couple episodes back. Uh, she was talking about her love of, of YA books and how there was definitely an element of it that was she was still trying to be cool in high school, uh, still trying to go back and, and do a little bit of revisionist history of what her own high school experience was. Uh, with middle grade, do you find that there's some truth to that, or is it more just about finding out what this is for, for Matt and for Finn and for the other characters? Um, are you talking about um, romance or just the whole feel of that just age? Just first in general. Um, obviously, I, I assume you've never encountered a Skinner in real life, although if you have, <laughs> that's, that's, you're, you're a fool for not using that in marketing. Get out there, tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> Why, yes, I hunt Skinner's. Uh, no. Um, Work you know, for Whitley Stryber. Oh, yeah. sick burn. I got his communion cover <laughs> right back here. I love that cover, but that book is some bull crap. But you know, let's move on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the oh, horror writer that suddenly becomes addicted or abducted by aliens. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a nut. Yeah. <laughs> Sick burn on with this driver. He's going to be watching this. I'm like, I was so excited about my copy of Del Toro Moon, and then they slammed me. I don't know why. He's still just looking at the You know, monsters, I was just thinking about what you asked about monsters. Um, you know, monster, it, fantasy books, let me back up. Fantasy books, and I do believe this, helps kids learn how to handle fear and, and, and being scared and, and being angry. Uh, and explore it in kind of a safe venue, which is the book, so that as they get older and realize that a lot of times monsters, monsters are real, and often it's it's other humans that are monsters. But they've had a little practice by reading books on on how to deal with being scared and how to come through on the other side. Uh, so I don't know if that helps any, but thought I'd throw that out. It does. It makes sense. Let's see. Let me uh, think what I wanted to make sure I ask you about. Uh, Del Toro Moon before we start talking about uh, Finn Finnegan. Uh, but oh, I wanted to ask you about talking horses. Because yes. these are just absolutely first rate talking animals. If there's anybody at Disney that's working on the next talking animal saga, read this book, learn from, from Darby Karshat and, and what she's done. So what are your tips and, and secrets for writing talking animals? Well, um, it's funny because another, another writer friend of mine, um, said, you know, talking horses could get real Disney real fast because, you know, it can be kind of silly. So I had to make sure that when I, I wrote these characters, I wrote them just as I would write a human character because race, gender, species doesn't matter. Good character is good character. So like I did with all my characters, I started with archetypes. And so I took the, the wise patriarch archetype for El Cid but overlaid another ancient archetype, the warrior, to come up kind of with his, um, with his uh, personality. Um, and then I took the trickster warrior to have Turk. So I just made sure I wrote those horse characters um, just as, I'm sorry, my, there we go. Uh, sorry about that. I wrote those horse characters just as I would you know, a human character and gave them flaws and gave them strengths and gave them personalities and let them make mistakes. And, and uh, I just thought it was so much fun, but overlaid, of course, with an equine view of the world. Let's uh, talk just a little bit about Finn Finnegan. And then I've got just some general questions about writing uh, that I want to throw at you, technical uh, 
uh, disruptions allowed. Uh, and, then, okay. and then I'll let you, I'm going to be respectful of your time. And I, I want you to get working on the next Del Toro Moon. Okay. <laughs> Del Toro 2, or, or whatever you decide to call it. Um, but tell uh, tell the Steam viewers just a little bit about uh, Finn Finnegan and, 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 and that series. Okay. Uh, Finn Finnegan, four book series uh, put out by Spencer Hill Press, um, is based on the ancient Irish legend of Finn McCool, Finn McCool, who was quite a trickster warrior as a young boy. Um, there's also the famous Tatha de Dana, which are a warrior people from ancient Ireland. And so I blended that all together, stuck them in modern day Colorado Springs on the west side where there's a lot of abandoned gold mines because Colorado's, you know, big gold, big gold state. And I had these so you're, uh, jogging in the morning. Are you are you running? Are you out looking for gold? <laughs> I, I wish, <laughs> but we're all pretty <laughs> panned out here. You know, Pike's Peak or bust. Well, it was a bust. Um, and it's funny because the, the running trails in the foothills by my house is exactly where Finn Finnegan is set. So, you know, I will run by and I think I know exactly in the book where that scene is. And, of course, uh, crows are a big part of Irish mythology. So uh, I had some crows which kind of warned young Finn and his mentor Gideon if monsters are nearby. And it's funny because when I go talk to kids at school, whenever they see crows on the playground, they're like, oh, my gosh, there's monsters. Always believe the crow. Uh, so anyway, I loved it. It was fun to uh, talk about Irish mythology um, in those books, something I've always loved to explore. Uh, right now, of course, I'm uh, exploring um, uh, kind of Western motifs. Uh, I'm blending uh, two genres. Uh, fantasy and old school Western, which is what Del, Del Toro Moon was, and really, really enjoyed that. Let me uh, let me ask you something you said earlier uh, about Del Toro Moon is that it's right now your favorite book. And I wanted to ask, is that always true of the book that you're writing or just of the book that's done, or is it Del Toro Moon in, in particular? Uh, good question. For me, that really is my favorite book I've written. Now, of course, I say that, and I might write one in the future, and I go, Sorry, Del Toro Moon, you're going to have to take second place. But um, my second favorite book is actually called Hound at the Gate. And that is the third Finn book. You know, it's not even the first one or the last one. It was the third one. But Hound at the Gate, until I wrote Del Toro Moon, had been my favorite book I'd ever written. Um, because in a way, it was a, love, it was a love letter to the state of Colorado. And, and I love my adopted state very much. So... I enjoyed Hound at the Gate. Plus, they played the ancient Irish sport of hurling, which is like lacrosse and hockey combined, and, and that was fun to write. So Hound at the Gate was my second favorite book, uh, and then Del Toro Moon is my first favorite book, until I write another book, which who knows, that might, you know, that might become my next one. <laughs> That's uh, something I'm guilty of is every book I'm writing is going to be my best book I've ever written and probably my favorite thing until it's done. And then I hate it for a little bit and then I love it again. And then when I start the next book, it's again the most beautiful book ever because it's done. It's finished. I wish I were I was still there just polishing as opposed to digging in and getting uh, going with a whole new project. I know. I know what you mean. Um, you know, you get you get you fall in love with those characters. You don't want to you don't want to lose them. And I think I may have lost my picture, but I'll keep talking to you. Um, may have lost the screen here, Rob. Sorry. Oh, no, um, you're just fine. 
Okay. And half of our uh, viewership will be listening uh, rather than watching anyway, so I think we'll be all right. Okay, I can't seem to see you again, but I'll just keep talking then. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, uh, it could be that um, a, a book in the future will be one that I love. But right now, Del Toro Moon is my favorite. Let's uh, let's kind of start to wrap things up since we, we just can't seem to, to shake these technical disruptions. Uh, oh, but one thing I always want to ask people uh, or, or authors that I have on here is what advice would you do you wish someone had told you when you were starting writing? What's the advice you most want to share with young writers? Um, is to read everything you can and read outside your genre. I mean, I love middle grade and I read a lot of middle grade, um, but read everything you can. Uh, read history, read biographies, read poetry, read poetry and read poetry because it'll teach you the beauty, beauty of language. Just read everything you can. And also when you start writing, remember, nobody's going to read your first draft. So just slam it out as fast as you can. You can always revise later. What is next for Darby Karshad? I know you've got Spanish Red coming and then have you got more projects on the horizon we can look forward to? Um, right now I'm working on a couple of ideas. You know how it goes, Rob, when you've got about three books in your head, and you can't seem to settle on one to work on. So I'm kind of in that mode right now. Um, and then pretty soon I'll be starting with edits on uh, Spanish red, and that'll take that'll that'll keep me busy for quite a while. Well, that one's got does it does that one have a firm release date already assigned to it? Um, actually, I'm going to talk to my publisher on Wednesday, I believe. Um, but I think right now we're aiming at fall uh, 2019, so about a year from now. Okay, I know that there's already a cover, and we're telling everybody about it, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so I assume that that. Um, lights a little bit of a fire under you when you when you need to work as opposed to starting a brand new project when you know that no matter what somebody's going to be pick, uh, paying money for that book uh, here in the near future yeah um and actually the cover that cover that's there is, is a temporary one we don't have the the real one yet that's just kind of a placeholder cover so, oh okay what's well, a really nice placeholder well yeah uh, al hollow press uh which is run by the phenomenal emma nelson uh is just been amazing to work with and they come out with the best covers i i can't speak i can't speak higher about them they are they're just the top-notch publishing house darby where uh remind uh steam viewer where they can find out more about you go ahead and give us your website again okay it's www.darbycarchit.com and everything you need is on there and uh i always respond to emails so if people have questions just drop me a line and I know that you're on Facebook because I'm forever seeing posts of you having uh, run up some mountain or done something really <laughs> athletic that make me feel guilty. Like, I, I should have done that this morning, uh, but I just lifted weights in my garage and called it a day because I had something else I wanted to do. Um, other than Facebook, what other uh, social media platforms are you on? Where can people connect with you? Okay. I'm also on Twitter under, you know, Darby Karchit and on Instagram, which I'm just kind of getting my feet under me. So bear with me on Instagram. And well, and once again, I want to apologize for the technical problem uh, on your podcast, Rob. I hope it didn't mess it up too bad. No, you're excellent. You have been a absolutely wonderful guest. It's been such a thrill to have you here that I would put up with another hour's worth of, of technical <laughs> difficulties if it meant I could continue to ask questions. Uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to lose the signal completely. So I think we should probably start to think about calling it a day. Um, 
thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, everyone watching, make sure you check us out at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, don't forget to be watching for Spanish Red and for certain, pick up a copy of Del Toro Moon. It is in it doesn't say this on the cover, but trust me, it's a horror novel for the middle grade set with a bit of a Western elements and a little bit of a, a little bit of romance, a tiny bit. So a little bit of everything. All right. Well, Darby, thanks uh, so much for being here, esteemed viewer. We'll see you next week when my guest will be Mary Cole. So make sure you come back on Monday. Do not miss that episode. And we will see you then.